One Art, a fiction podcast with Lisa Moore and Olivia Robinson. Hello, and welcome to One Art, a fiction podcast. My name is Lisa Moore. And I'm Olivia Robinson. Uh, During this podcast, we will ask local writers to demonstrate different aspects of fiction writing through pieces of flash fiction that they've written uh, specifically to read aloud on this podcast. So today we're going to be talking about setting. Today we're joined by two local writers, Alison Graves and Elizabeth Hicks. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Alison Graves received her BA in English Literature from Dalhousie University and her MA in Creative Writing from Memorial University, where she wrote a collection of short stories called Soft Serve. And it's a fantastic title, and and the collection lives up to the title. It's also fantastic. Um, Recently, she completed a residency at the Banff Centre and an internship at Drawn and Quarterly in Montreal, you know, the hippest uh, publishing house in the world. Uh, Her work has appeared in the Antigonish Review, the Riddle Fence Magazine, and Room Magazine. Her fiction has been longlisted for prizes in Prism, The Fiddlehead, the Newfoundland Quarterly, and her last story won the Newfoundland Arts and Letters Award for Short Fiction. Yay, Allison! Last week, she spoke at the Trampoline Hall Lecture Series. That's a totally big deal. And she will be this year's writer-in-residence for the Whole Fast Contemporary Art Festival. She lives and works and plays drums in Newfoundland. And uh, Elizabeth Hicks is an actor, writer, and filmmaker uh, based in St. John's, Newfoundland. And she holds a master's degree in English and a diploma in performance and communications media from Memorial University. This past year, Elizabeth has written for and performed at sketch comedy festivals in Toronto, Chicago, and New York City. Her first play, 12 Nasty Women, was chosen to be workshopped and performed at the Women's Work Festival in St. John's this year. She is a board member of St. John's Short Play Festival, sat on a selection committee for this year's St. John's International Women's Film Festival, and is a proud member of the Monkstown Writing Group. As an actor, Elizabeth worked this year with Resource Centre for the Arts, a provincial tour of Megan Cole's Squawk, and Rising Tide Theatre's Summer Seasons. We have two very busy excellent guests today. Yeah. And Elizabeth has uh, worked on um, dramatic podcasts, acted in dramatic podcasts and uh, that we've made here at Memorial. And, you know, I can tell you that when I'm listening to her act, I completely forget there was ever a script, I believe, whoever she is. Anyway, we have given our fearless writers the following prompt. Well, it's about setting. That's what we're exploring. So here is what Elizabeth Bowen says about setting. Nothing can happen nowhere. The locale of the happening always colors the happening and often to a degree shapes it. Scene, and when Elizabeth Bowen says scene, she means the setting or the context where the action unfolds. Scene is only justified in a novel where it can be shown or at least felt to act upon action or character. In fact, where it has dramatic use. So I think that's really important. Where setting has dramatic use, that means forwarding the plot. Where not intended for dramatic use, scene is a sheer slower down, Bowen says. So that means like if it doesn't forward the plot, don't have scene description. This flash fiction prompt asks you to write a 500 word piece that is all setting. 
So uh, as with the famous shot in the film Psycho um, by Hitchcock, where we turn corners and sneak up on a shower, terrified of the bloody drain, uh, or in the spooky, um, also famously narrow and claustrophobic interior shots of New York tenement apartments in Rosemary's Baby, where the camera creeps around corners, creating a path that as the viewer creeps along, it builds um, unbearable and sinister suspense. Or as with the new imaging technologies that show us the splitting of cancer cells, even as they split in real time in the murky miniature universes and galaxies inside our very skin. Write a setting that shapes events or characters. Stamp out any detail that doesn't do the double duty of simultaneously informing action and character development. Yeah, make the world of your story the drama and tone of the tale you're telling. Give me a setting full of plot. Show me the rising action of a wave or a storm or a wildfire, the crawl of climate change, the reflection of a crowd in the milky black eye of a beluga in an Orlando aquarium as it butts its bald forehead against an invisible glass. Give me terrain that is action. I feel like I need to applaud after that. <laughs> <laughs> Doing my best here, girls. Doing my best. So let's jump, jump right in. Allison, can you read your piece for us? Yeah. Uh, I gave two titles to my piece because I couldn't decide. One is Party Mix. The other is Borders. Joy and her mother drove toward the border, weaving in and out of the fast lane, sunshine dropping onto their laps hardly and then all at once. Joy had just finished a bag of party mix right down to the bottom and her fingers were a dusty orange, almost a yellow, like she was a lifelong smoker. She tried wiping them on the front seat of her mother's Windstar without her noticing. When they approached the border, the sun disappeared, Joy's bones feeling colder. She pulled both her and her mother's passports out of her mother's purse on the floor in the front seat and left an orange fingerprint right on her mother's nose on the picture page. That fall, Joy had started seeing a married man who taught her contemporary American fiction class at Queens. His name was Gary and he was balding, right at the top of his head in a perfect circle. Gary was smart and he taught Joy about the recklessness of living under late capitalism, and sometimes he would come to her apartment and read American Psycho and tuck her into bed like she was a child. He would tell her he was leaving his wife and that he liked Joy's collarbone, the weightlessness of her past. Joy's mother had taken her to Buffalo for the day, a trip they'd been taking once a year since Joy was a kid. When she turned 13, her mother started encouraging Joy to wear clothes she hated or knew she would soon throw out. And because each person could only declare $200 a day, Joy and her mother would go to the bathroom at the Cheesecake Factory and throw their old clothes in the garbage and rip the tags off the new ones, leaving them undeclared. Joy had been looking for a way to tell her mother about Gary all day. She also wanted to tell her that she got so drunk the first week of Frosh that she stopped seeing straight. She wanted to tell her that she'd gotten an IUD at Planned Parenthood and she'd been bleeding for months. She wanted her mother to pat her head right on the top and tell her this was all normal and okay. Their customs officer, Helen, was an older woman with two pimples, one right under her nose and another on her chin. After some questioning, she got Joy's mother to pull the Windstar to a small parking lot on the Canadian side of the border, and she searched their car. Helen started losing breath as she leaned into the trunk, swiping her arms under the seat for evidence of things left undeclared. Joy wondered why Helen pulled them over and thought it had something to do with women not trusting each other. While Helen was bent at a 90-degree angle in the trunk, Joy's mother looked at her and smiled like everything they were in on, they were in on together. Helen shut the trunk with surprising strength and looked at Joy critically. 
She may have just been judging her outfit, the mix of colors and patterns making no sense. Are you sure your daughter's not hiding anything, ma'am? Joy couldn't look at her mother then. She just gazed at her feet, thinking about how her mother was perfect and beautiful and honest. Of course not, Helen. We tell each other everything, her mother said. Okay, Allison, that is just, isn't that just the most, it's tight, concise, it's two characters completely, three characters completely developed. And and the setting is absolutely necessary for the, the driving engine of the plot. Definitely, yeah. And I like how um, like being in the car is the main setting, but then there's kind of all these like secondary settings that are mentioned as well and um, also so vivid, even though it's um, such a short piece. So it's incredible, yeah. What do you think, Elizabeth? Well, my immediate thought is that having your car searched at the border is one of those things, I think, or like the same way that when they check you at the airport, it feels like a violation of your privacy, even though they're like, well, it's your choice if you want to travel, so we get to do whatever we want kind of thing. It is personal to have someone look through your car and say, are you hiding anything? Mm -hmm. And so I I guess inside that car is sort of a safe space with Joy and her mother, but Joy hasn't let her mother into her own little you know, personal car within the car. Yeah. Uh, it's just such a beautiful image. Yeah, and like to, you know, the are you hiding anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. One of the things I love about this piece, Allison, it are, are the layers, kind of like clothing, like the, the cheese dust that ends up on the mother's face. Like there are all these layers within layers within layers, the patterns of, of uh, Joy's clothes that make no sense. Even the notion that there's this IUD, which is, you know, seems to be malfunctioning, hidden within. And the kind of weight nakedness when Joy is, is with Gary and he is, you know, impressed by her weightlessness of the weightlessness of her past meaning presumably that she's a lot younger than him and then that he's teaching this questionable novel class (laughs) yeah so tell me what you were thinking about Allison when you were when you were thinking about setting yeah I mean I think you know borders can be like symbolic of boundaries and limits and I think that that at its core just like sets up this narrative for kind of like what happens when boundaries are crossed or something this is something that my mom and i would actually do when we went to buffalo from guelph when i was younger (laughs) (laughs) but i think like this idea that like yeah what you're saying about layers like this idea that her and her mother are together holding this secret that they're like wearing these clothes across the border but then it's joyce holding all these secrets from her mother at the same time we have a sense, though, that those secrets are going to, you know, going to be told very soon, that she can't keep stuff from her mother for very long. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's such a, like, beautiful piece as it is, but you, there's also so many great, like, unanswered questions in it that you could expand into even, like, a, a full short story, I think, is <laughs> contained in there, so. One of the things about, you know, giving someone a, a prompt of 500 words is, especially if it's about a technical uh, aspect of writing fiction is of course that writers are radical and uncontainable uh, ungovernable so they bust out all over the place even in a 500 word space so yeah. you know the there's so much going on in this piece about character as well and you know Helen is this border 
guard is such a like the way that she slams down that trunk it's as though she's slamming down the trunk on the secrets mm. in a way and the idea of of undeclared like that something is undeclared which of course is metaphorical in this story for joy's secrets yeah. they are undeclared they're unspoken and also of course gary hasn't told his wife and is lying it seems to us the readers to joy about his intentions when you were writing it we obviously gave you the prompt to write with setting in mind first but did you write with setting in (laughs) mind or did the characters come to you first um i feel like it was actually a bit of a hard prompt for me because i usually you know just start writing a story based on like an image or like something written in my like the notes section of my phone and I feel like this like this idea of the mother and daughter crossing the border wearing these clothes like changing at the cheesecake factory was like this funny idea that kind of like you know everything else was built around but Mm -hmm. I was interested in like yeah starting from this place of like climax with setting because that's like not at all really how I write and I actually feel like usually I write from like really like banal settings because I don't know something that was like um critically running through my collection of short stories was this idea of like non-places so like supermarkets gas stations post offices like these places where like really kind of like boring or everyday encounters happen and Mm -hmm. also places that are quite often replicated all over the north america like you know starbucks and uh, the 7-elevens these buildings which are exactly the same yeah like organized similarly yeah yeah. Hawk the landscape, you yeah. know, and uh, and end up having this stranglehold on the way we live our lives and even think. Yeah, but I think a car and like highways are also, you know, uh, good places where you know you're not you're not in a place and kind of like the precariousness of being in multiple places is, mm-hmm. especially multiple countries in this case, is. Yeah. Um, contributing to kind of just like the precariousness of the characters and the moment they're in. Well, borders also are non-places. Like they are the ultimate non-place totally. yeah. because you lose your citizenship yeah. in on a border. Like anyone who gets stuck, you know, in in the space of a border or a sanctuary, you know, they can't move on to Canada. They can't go back to the United States. This happens and they, they have no rights in that space. Yeah. And so it is a tremendously apt metaphor for what is going on with joy here with this man who has you know and in a way she's caught between gary and her mother like she is in a border crossing between coming clean to her mother and and we sense that once she does that if she does that her mother is going to you know give her the goods on gary and she will believe her mother (laughs) yeah Maybe that's because I'm a mother and I believe that mothers are wise and that their daughters listen to them and their sons and anything else they have. Why don't we have a look at what Elizabeth has done? Because I think yes. it's a good contrast and yet there are some, some themes that are mm-hmm. similar. Definitely. Elizabeth, will you read us your beautiful piece? Sure thing. So this is called Bonaventure. If you drive the road to old Bonaventure on an overcast night... The darkness in your rearview mirror is abysmal. Wait for a clear night, though, and the stars are the brightest you might ever see. Old Bonaventure wraps around a cove, like a horseshoe shape or the letter Y, 
You drive the long, lonely, poorly paved stem of the Y until you reach the water, and then the road splits in two, and you can go around the left or the right. Lilith lived in Old Bonaventure because she was spending her summer pretending to be someone else for a living. She was employed by a theater company in a nearby town called Trinity, a town kept afloat by tourists who visit because of the near-pristine preservation of heritage and the indisputable natural beauty. Lilith was pretending to be a 19th century woman, maybe her name was Anne or Mary, in a bonnet and a long skirt and an apron who worked at the flakes keeping maggots off the fish. Lilith spent afternoons picking tiny wet pebbles from painted wooden fish on flakes constructed by set designers while visitors marveled from the bank above. They didn't even know the difference. Later, she sat on her doorstep, retrieved those teensy rocks from beneath her fingernails, and, with a flick into the driveway, returned them to the ground in Old Bonaventure. About half the houses in Old Bonaventure are empty, perhaps 12 or so out of 25. These are either one, returned to only on summertime weekends, a place to which you might escape when the city overwhelms you or when you need life at a slower pace for a few days, or when the idea of no cell phone service relaxes you. Or, two, these are houses that have been left behind for good, a different kind of escape, an escape from rather than an escape to, a necessary departure from a place that couldn't sustain life anymore. For example, the comparatively new blue house across from the church that was, at the end of its life, a money pit, the pipes froze and broke one winter while Brad Toop was away working in Alberta, and he just couldn't justify fixing them. So now that one's empty, too. A small, round, stained glass light catcher still hangs suction cup to the window. Sun faded for sale signs. A perfectly adorable greenhouse with plump tomatoes growing fuller each day. A face-down basketball net resting on its bent-up rim. Gravestones so old, they lay in overgrown grass, their details indiscernible, pushed over by roots of the large maple tree that now governs the cemetery space. Early in the mornings at the government wharf, the exhaust of a handful of Silverados and F-150s weirdly breathes some sort of life into the place. On a rare day, one that was hot and clear, a time when you didn't have to battle the blackness of night or the grayness of fog, Lilith jumped off the dock into the water. Her neighbor David told her that she couldn't have picked a worse spot to jump. The water there is full of fish guts and gasoline. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. So, what do you think, Allison? I was just thinking about how our pieces accommodate each other. But just like the, it's so interesting that they both start in cars. And like, you know, this, I think it's a, you obviously have like a really clear conception of this place and it seems like really genuine but then it's also like interesting that you're pretending to be someone or like the character is pretending to be someone else while they're there in yeah. fact the whole town is is pretending to be something exactly else. Yeah. yeah yeah definitely i do find myself writing about cars a lot and i hate driving and so maybe that's why <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember one piece you write, wrote for the writing group was yeah. entirely a conversation happening in a car yeah. and then you were like i hate driving i don't know why i keep writing <laughs> well yeah. you write drama and i i have found that it's very hard to put people in a car on the stage is that true have you found a way to do it well, actually, the the my latest play that I'm working on, it, it at least starts in a car, but 
I guess the car gets bigger. It gets the size of the stage. But, um, yeah, I mean, you don't want people on stage to be static, you know, sitting next to each other. But in a story, you can see that car go wherever you need it to go. And that's the difference between, that's one of the differences between, say, stage film or video and the written page. On the written page, you are unfettered, really. You can do, you can do whatever you want. You can go as far as you like in terms of setting. Whereas film and, you know, like, of course, it just, and the stage, the, the three walls of the stage limit you. And in film, the cost of creating it. Yeah, and the practicality of Michael Ondaatje said, and I don't remember when or where, but I'm pretty sure it was him. Uh, someone, he, you know, he mostly writes poetry and fiction, but wrote plays and radio dramas and, and screenplays as well. But um, someone asked him once if he was interested in writing theater. And he said that he was much more interested in writing fiction because of how difficult it would be to get a bathtub on stage. And that frustrated him. <laughs> so he wanted he wanted a few bathtubs, yeah, did he? <laughs> I guess so. Um, so what do you think? What do you think, Olivia? Are the the themes in this piece? You know, like it's, let's set aside the question of setting for a second or not. What what are the themes? It's kind of similar to Allison's in terms of like both uh, with the character in this and in Allison's are kind of like in an in between place almost. So even though there is a very distinct setting, they're both kind of not really drifting, but yeah, in an in-between space and trying to escape from either who they are or the secrets that they're keeping from people. Well, I love that road. And I think Allison mentioned mm-hmm. that first, like that, that entryway. It's, it's yes. a, and it's, it's almost as though it is an entryway to the past you know, to a different time. And of course, we're recognizing that it's there's all, it's also an entryway into a facsimile or a ersatz environment. And the notion that there are two kinds of houses, the ones that are have been escaped from and the ones that are an escape to is, uh, is very like uh, a border in a way. Mm-hmm. And we and they're almost, a, it's almost as though, you know, we can see them on the opposite side of the road. Elizabeth, of course, there really is a theater in Trinity. Did you actually ever play this part? Uh, Yeah, so a lot of this is based on my experience this past summer, um, because I got this podcast prompt like a couple days after I had returned to St. John's from living in a place called Old Bonaventure. Um, (laughs) This is based on that real Old Bonaventure, but it's not exactly the same. Um, And I did live there, and it's about 25 minutes further into the woods, basically, from Trinity, and Trinity's already sort of isolated. And so I had a lot of time to think out there all summer. And uh, and there's a lot of things about the Bonavista Peninsula that are contradictory, I think, because it is such a, a naturally beautiful place. It is incredible. Like, it's no wonder people go there. But there's also, you know, so there's local people that their families have lived there forever. Um, and then there's people, there's been this influ- influx of, of other people that are trying to profit off of of the beauty and you know and so the tourism industry is growing and and that's a good thing or it's not and it's all kind of confusing and it's not just the beauty of the landscape it is the culture Mm -hmm. right and and that is what's being represented in the uh picking you know fake maggots off the fish well yeah it's it's really interesting because the uh i was living in old bonaventure even though i was working in trinity um because there's nowhere 
for the person who runs the theater company to rent housing for um, her employees in near Trinity because everything is an Airbnb or a regular B&B. Um, so there's so many people visiting, coming to see the theater, and rising tide is a lot of the reason why the area is so so popular for tourists. But then at the same time, like the tourists are kind of pushing the theater company out, even though they're coming there for it. It's all so yeah. complicated. What <laughs> do you strange. both think, or all of you, What do, Olivia, what do you think of Elizabeth Bowen's her iron hard rule that there can be no extra setting unless it moves the plot forward or the action forward. What do you think of that? Is yeah, it true? I think so to a certain extent. I was trying to think of any like novels or stories where like setting is not I don't know if not important is the right way, but like is kind of secondary to what else is happening and like the closest I could think maybe would be like dystopian but even that is kind of moving into a different idea of setting like it might not be a setting that we know but we can believe that it exists I guess yeah so I think I agree with what she says about you guys I think it might be one of those rules that is you know stated so that it's hard and fast and absolute Uh, as something to push towards but I guess like anything there could be exceptions I found it really interesting and I'm really glad that you asked me to be here for this podcast because I think like setting is one of the things that like I'm always thinking about but um, I wrote a little tiny short play about a year ago where I tried to set it in this nowhere place and then I I put it off in the short play festival and then all anybody wanted to talk about was where was it the whole time I was just thinking about like where are they and I was like that's not important (laughs) (laughs) that's a really interesting that is an amazing experience Yeah. yeah I mean when we came up with this prompt I also thought oh I'm so glad I don't have to do that prompt because I really thought, you know, setting is 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 hard to think about because I think the go-to is characters or or conflict. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think, Allison? As I said earlier, like I just don't think about setting first ever. I I don't think like and and I think even here I was like uh, you know how much of this even occurs at the border like two paragraphs the rest is like the context or or you know inside Joy's brain but I don't know I mean I mentioned that I spoke at Trampoline Hall but I've been like thinking very critically for the last week about the reality television show Love Island which is what I spoke about there and it's like this weird reality television show where they all go to Fiji and like fall in love and I was contrasting that with Newfoundland and <laughs> feeling so good. feelings of like those feelings on Newfoundland Island and it was hilarious. All, like I thought a lot about the place that I lived and I don't usually do that I don't think so that was an interesting experiment well you know um the, there is the famous story that uh, Bernice Morgan when she wrote Random Passage and sent it to Jack McClelland at um, McClelland and Stewart, maybe? Um, anyway, when she sent it to the mainland to be published, uh, you know, they, they suggested that uh, it be set somewhere on the mainland. And you, I mean, you know what Random Passage is about, right? It's about, it's, it basically, she was setting uh, Newfoundland in, she was making up, she was putting the solid ground under our feet 
in fiction for one of the first times that that history that history of moving coming from Europe and arriving on this island and having to scrape a living out of it and so I think it's interesting to think about where your place is and where when you see it in fiction and it's also really interesting to read fiction from places that you haven't been or or you've only visited and to think about uh, so, you know, when you read writers from, uh, say, Nigeria, and they describe flowers or fruits that, you know, you've never tasted or seen or smelled, and, and you see that word, and often it's it's the word that they use in in the language where, that they grew up, and you don't know what that is, and you have to look it up, and how political... Uh, setting becomes then, you know, how powerful that uh, people are writing their place into existence in the imaginations of their readers. Like, I, th- I think setting is far more political than we understand or give it credit for. It is because in a certain way, those m- metropolises like London and New York and Boston and those empires we're colonizing our imaginations in in a way. And then at a certain point, fiction started coming out of the periphery, places like Newfoundland, like Jamaica, like, you know, and, and you're suddenly getting a whole new conception of what setting is. And it's very interesting when, for instance, you're publishing internationally and you're asked to change Canadian spelling to American spelling. Mm-hmm. And like, that is a form of, that is that is a question of setting you know because we we read canadian spelling here still or british spelling or whatever you want to call it and so when your words are like even if it's just a vowel you know are changed it's uh it's a form of it's a political moment I actually went to that the Random Passage site in, which is close to where you yeah. stayed, is just in New Bonaventure <laughs> rather than Old Bonaventure. Yeah, and it was bizarre because they like have this whole site set up in like a church, I think it is, and there are these women there who will like cook you a full breakfast, and the movie is playing, and like you can buy the books and everything, and it's like up on top of a hill, and uh, it's gorgeous there but like when we were there we felt like we were the only people in the town like there was very few people there and a lot of empty houses and just these yeah women on a on the top of the hill in the church like watching random passage on loop all day yeah and they made a funny comment about wanting the site to become like green gables that was like their the goal that they wanted to like have the random passage site um but then they were worried about the road that people couldn't get in on the road because it was like well it is falling apart long and winding yeah and needs to be repaved and they're repaving the road all the way as far as trouty which is still about 15 minutes or so from from the two bonaventures Mm -hmm. so yeah the random passage site it's funny that you bring it up because it's like you know so close a walk away from where the place I lived. Yeah, and just beautiful, like, yeah. Oh, it's spectacular. And the thing about roads and paving roads in Outport, Newfoundland, is that some of those roads are, you know, 
maybe a couple of centuries old. They were roads mm-hmm. that went into the into the woods, you know, for gathering wood, bringing wood out. Like they're lanes, you know, for carts or or dog drawn stuff or when they pave those roads like it is a they're paving over i mean i can quote joni mitchell (laughs) they're paving paradise uh, and putting up a parking lot but no they really are like it is an erasure of a very old mark on the landscape that that and it's a mark that uh you know bends and twists to accommodate whatever boulders are there and all of that uh geographical uh characteristics of of a life from the past is just plowed under um and lost Mm -hmm. so it's an interesting just interesting to to talk about setting in those ways as well yeah Yeah. i think it's likely that not very many people used uh land to get to bonaventure uh, much quicker in a boat but Uh of course not so many people have those on standby anymore (laughs) definitely so um all those the empty houses in um Elizabeth's piece there reminded me a bit of a section uh, of uh, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf in like the center in the time passes section. There's like not, there's characters mentioned, but the main action just occurs in this empty house. And it's probably like 20 or so pages of just the description of the house. So I thought I'd read a little bit of it, just like a paragraph. So nothing stirred in the drawing room or in the dining room or on the staircase. Only through the rusty hinges and swollen sea-moistened woodwork, certain airs detached from the body of the wind, the house was ramshackle after all, crept round corners and ventured indoors. Almost one might imagine them as they entered the drawing room, questioning and wondering, toying with the flap of hanging wallpaper, asking, would it hang much longer? When would it fall? Then, smoothly brushing the walls, they passed on musingly, as if asking the red and yellow roses on the wallpaper whether they would fade, and questioning, gently, for there was time at their disposal, the torn letters in the waste paper basket, the flowers, the books, all of which were now open to them and asking, were they allies, were they enemies, how long would they endure? Wow. I just love Wolf so much. And there is a real connection with uh yeah. with Elizabeth's piece and mm-hmm. and you're seeing the passage of time there but who is seeing it because this house is abandoned empty yeah so Elizabeth I just want to ask you about your ending so uh, just just to remind us uh this narrator is Lilith first of all why Lilith it's funny because in the writing group that Olivia and I have, I feel like we've talked multiple times about like how do you come up with character names? Oh, names, know. yeah. And I just feel like, like I just thought of one, and I was like, mm, the name Lilith, hmm, interesting. It like it just <laughs> came to my mind, and then I looked it up, and it means like night monster. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, that's interesting, and. Uh, it's just such a beautiful name that means something really terrible. Uh, and so I thought that that contradiction was sort of fitting with the, the whole, the old and new and the, the real and fake kind of binary oppositions that I had going on. Okay, and that yeah. actually like kind of answers my question about the ending as well. But so she's jumping into this water. Mm-hmm. It feels like a kind of escape in a way. And, mm-hmm. But she's jumping into fish gods <laughs> so what what's going on there elizabeth <laughs> well i guess i kind of saw it as um like lilith maybe finally trying to uh take a step to immerse herself in this place uh uh-huh. because she feels a little bit like an outsider 
Um, I, I'm yeah, I'm not sure if that really came through so much, but you know, she's she, working as an actor, pretending to be all these things, but um, it's all very surface level, uh, right? Uh, and so when she makes that decision, it's like I'm I'm here now. I'm going to like literally immerse myself in this place, and then it doesn't really work out as planned. <laughs> well, I guess it, it works. She immerses herself, but it's maybe not as as beautiful and peaceful as, as she wanted it to be. And I also saw it as um, just another one of these things where the water looks so inviting. And this part is fiction. I, you know, a lot of this is based on my uh, summer. Some other people I knew jumped off the wharf, but I didn't. Uh, but when you know, when it's like so hot outside, or it's like you know, you think about when people are like so, uh, like they're in the woods and they're so thirsty, they would drink anything, and then they drink stream water and it makes them sick, sort mm-hmm. of thing. So it's like it's such a hot day. She, you need this kind of escape, and so you jump into the water, and it's disgusting underneath the surface right but that so what what did you think allison no i i am interested in in the binaries you're talking about i want you to keep talking <laughs> keep talking yeah. you were demanding it was demanding <laughs> no 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 i'm just yeah i think it's interesting and i think that's cool too yeah like just what is what's right below the surface you know but also you know fish is was such a part of the history of that place and with the moratorium it was torn apart and destroyed and so it is kind of like an an immersion into the past Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that in the same you know she thrust herself into the water the same way she was thrust into living in this place you know no choice about about where she was it, it, I've been thinking a whole lot about tourism in Newfoundland, I guess, for, for a while now. And so it, I've been thinking about facades and, and building things up so that, you know, like Trinity, so much money has been put into it. Everything is beautiful, wood-paneled siding. Uh, it is like a, a snapshot of perfect history. And then if you drive down the road, you see all of these dilapidated things that are are not so pretty and so you know the surface of the water looks perfect and shiny and then underneath it's all slimy and gross but yeah you know what you're saying about the moratorium is you know it's you can't not think about it when you see you look on the hill and there are five houses and they all have their own wharf and, and none of it's being used. And it was very clear that at one time it was it was a bustling place. Um, and, and still, even now, a lot of people keep their boats there. Like it's, it's busy uh, considering the size of the place and the amount of people that live there. But can you, either of you think of any novels or stories that like the setting really stands out for you or is like very memorable? I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I could talk again. <laughs> if you need time to think, Allison. <laughs> no, if you have if you have one, you should say it. Um, well, I was just when you you know you you let us know that you were going to ask us that question, and uh, that's a secret, Elizabeth. <laughs> I was just being honest. <laughs> Don't ever be honest again on this podcast. Okay, well, it's a good thing that we can cut this up. <laughs> yeah, we're not cut. We have to leave it in now. Verisimilitude. This is cinema. This is audio verite. <laughs> yes. No podcast secrets. So I was just thinking about things that I read recently, and I'm going to bring this one up because I was just thinking about it when Lisa was talking about how setting can sometimes be political. So. Uh, 
the short story A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings by Gabriel Garcia Marquez is one of my favorite short stories and uh, that's one of the ones I think about when I think of great examples of setting Mm -hmm. Uh, and I should have took it with me because uh, there's some really great quotes and it's very similar to Newfoundland because he talks about like the grayness and the ocean Uh, but I taught that a short story as part of my um, first year English class uh, last fall and uh, we were talking about magic realism in that story and I was like what are some examples you know that that make you think that this could be an example of magic realism and uh, a, lo- a lot of them said first uh, it's all the crabs in the house there, there's so many crabs why would crabs be in the house when really that's something that could happen very easily uh, in warmer climates because uh, a lot of the house was probably outdoors and there's a courtyard and, and you don't need to be you know closed off in your house away from the wind in, in warmer climates and I, and I, I don't think that a lot of them thought about that how you know the amount of crabs that were around that might not actually be so so magical <laughs> well did I did I already tell my story about this this story no okay uh, because we've done a few podcasts now and I, I could be repeating myself but I have to tell this because I wrote a piece about that very story uh, for for a CBC website and the thing is uh, when I read that story I also thought Come on. I mean, the crabs are pouring up the house, up the, the porch, and onto the bed where the people are. Like, it, for me, that was... Because Gabriel Garcia Marquez always said that everything in his books is, is absolutely true. It happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, uh, uh, come on, Gabriel. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think he says that it, it might be magic realism for you, but for people in Latin America, that's, that's real life. Right. So <laughs> I was in Cuba... And I was on a bus and I was, you know, it was this, it was this luxury bus and it was pouring torrential rain, like so thick. It was like Vaseline, like you couldn't see. And every time the wipers went, like you had a glimpse and then, and then it was just completely blacked out and uh, not blacked out, but you know, opaque. And, uh, suddenly the entire bus filled with the stink of fish I mean like really and I was like what the hell and and then I when the wiper went I looked out the window at the front window the windshield and the entire road ahead of us was bright red like it was like someone had rolled out a red carpet and I said what the hell is that and the driver says that is the crabs they're moving from the ocean across the road to the other side and then we heard they did that every day at exactly that time so that when we wanted to get a taxi back from where we were going which was the bay of pigs the uh, the taxi driver said oh yeah no we got to wait 15 minutes because the crabs will reach up and like pinch the tires of the of the taxi cab and deflate them so like they not only does it happen but it happens exactly like they know exactly when it's going to happen and for me then I realized yes Gabriel Garcia Marquez is telling the truth these things are real I mean you somehow Elizabeth (laughs) knew that crabs could possibly come it never occurred to me I always thought that must be an uh, image of magic but no it's 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 real it might be a, a good, because that's one of the first things that happened in that story, right? So so maybe he was aware that it was a little bit of a an odd occurrence for that many crabs to be around, but it's not so far-fetched 
And so it was a, maybe a nice segue into all of the other magical things that happen. Yes, like the man who falls from the sky with wings, that, but are, they are full of maggots. They are. Just like your wooden mm-hmm. fish. Well, <laughs> it's funny because I was just thinking one of my favorite quotes from that story. It's something, something he is the place where they keep this man with wings is in a, a chicken pen and uh and he's like flapping all around and uh the phrase or the series of words chicken dung and lunar dust was what beautiful. was flying around like those two things right next to each other <laughs> beautiful <laughs> just but, like fish guts <laughs> yes yes yeah because he molts right he starts to molt and lose his feathers um, allison Having having a few thoughts over here. I to comment on something on like what you were saying earlier. I was thinking about Bell Island, which is where my mom is from, and it's just like such an interesting community. In to complement what you're talking about, because like, you know, when my mom was growing up, there was like fifteen thousand people that lived there, and now there's like fifteen hundred or like two thousand, and it's like so interesting to see like yeah like all the vacant houses and like you know just like how much that's changed and then to answer your current question I'm teaching the lottery in a class right now by Shirley Jackson I actually didn't know that this question was going to be presented because I guess I didn't read it (laughs) I think it was in my section classic (laughs) maybe that's why but yeah I think that that's also like a good um setting is like really important I think to kind of like just like demonstrate the the suffocation and like volatility of such a small community of people and I think that's relevant to what I was just talking about you know yeah yeah you guys are getting all pomo on the podcast and <laughs> ripping down the fourth wall and telling how we're making our podcast. I don't know. These guys are re- well. It's rebels. episode four. It's about time <laughs> yeah. the public knows the truth. All the podcast. <laughs> Any last thoughts about setting, gals? Newfoundland is a really special place to write from. I think, and therefore, like setting is always. If you're writing about Newfoundland, I feel like it's important. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for your beautiful pieces. Yes, so good. Thank you, Olivia, for my my buddy, my pal, (laughs) my partner. Struggling through the cold, (laughs) trying not to snuffle into the microphone. Um, Yeah, so before we go, we just wanted to mention some other great podcasts that you can listen to. Flahulik with Mary Dalton, The Academic and the Activist uh, with Amanda Bittner and Jenny Wright. Um, Riddle Fence also has a wonderful podcast. Um, And Lisa's own State of the Arts podcast is also an excellent listen. And the Writers Alliance of Newfoundland and Labrador also has a podcast on the go. So uh, give those a listen if you're looking for something else. Great. And these guys are going to be in our Breakwater Short Fiction Collection, Hard Ticket, which is forthcoming. So, you know, stay tuned because you can already tell they're great writers, huh? (laughs) And we'll be uh, right back. After the break, going to have our final segment on the favorite fiction of people with wild jobs report. So I'm going to be talking to um, Lynn Moore, who's Lisa's sister, about her job as a lawyer here in St. John's. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to One Art, a fiction podcast with Lisa Moore and Olivia Robinson. Hello? Hello? 
Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm here talking with Lynn Moore, who's a lawyer here in St. John's. So can you just tell me a little bit um, about your job? Well, uh, my work involves representing people who were sexually assaulted as children, and I sue governments or institutions or churches or school boards uh, who were responsible for those children but didn't take care of them. So a lot of my clients were in foster care or uh, in Whitburn or Pleasantville, which were boys' homes and girls' homes in the 70s, 80s, well, actually since the 1950s. And I take the government to court or the church or the school board or whoever's responsible for the institution and get compensation for the people that were abused. Wow, that's incredible work. How long have you been a lawyer? I've been a lawyer since 1993, and I've been doing this work since 2013. Before I did this work, I spent some time as a Crown Prosecutor, and I spent some time with the Department of Justice in their civil division representing the government when the government was sued. And that background gave me a solid understanding of what it would take to do the work that I'm doing now. And uh, so I've taken that experience, the, the Crown Prosecutor years in particular, I spent a lot of time in court. And a lot of civil lawyers don't actually spend much time in court. So it gives me, I feel, a bit of a leg up to have conducted so many trials. And I'm always willing to go to trial again, and I think the lawyers on the other side know that, and we've had a lot of success in settling cases. Have you always worked um, in Newfoundland? Yes, always. I, I've lived here my whole life except for the three years that I went to law school. And where did you go to uh, law school? I went to Dalhousie in Halifax. Yeah, awesome. I'm from Nova Scotia. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I know Dal well. Um, so could you tell us a little bit um, about a book that has been meaningful to you? Well, I've been thinking about that for a long time, and it's really hard because I read a lot, and uh, I, I find it hard to just pick out one book. But there was a book that I read when I was about 19 or 20, and it was called uh, Flowers for Algernon, and it was written by a person, Danny Keyes, and I stumbled across this book, and it was about a person who had significant cognitive impairment. And he underwent a surgery, which increased his IQ exponentially. And uh, there was a rat named Algernon that also had the same uh, surgery that he ended up taking care of. And the book struck me because he had been very happy as a person with a cognitive delay. And he became... A, a person who was not happy and who was sometimes unkind uh, when he had this increased intelligence. And it made me think about how we exemplify people and look up to people who have these particular talents. But the, the important thing about people is kindness because after a period of time, his intelligence regresses and he forgets almost everything, but he remembers the rat and he still brings flowers to the rat's grave. And it just struck with me, and I think it's informed a lot of my work, that being kind is one of the most important things that a human being can do, but it's not usually what gets attention and praise. And so I try and bring kindness to every aspect of my work. Yes, definitely. Who's the author of that? 
his name was Daniel Keyes. Daniel Keyes. I've added it to my reading list for sure. <laughs> Sounds incredible. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. Well, thank you very much for interviewing me, and good luck with this. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. been listening to one art a fiction podcast with lisa moore and olivia robinson 